If you know any other reporters anywhere in America who want an easy story, pick a large public project, ask them whether they had minority inclusion data, ask them whether they had goals involved, ask them whether they got a report, ask them if you can have the report, and then fact check the report. Welcome to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground, where we talk about supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity with everyone from academics, historians, and business leaders. With your hosts, Chloe Guidry-Reed and Adam Moore, you'll hear inspiring stories and practical tips for overcoming challenges and gaining insight into supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity. Let's dive in. This episode is brought to you by Higher Ground. Higher Ground is a technology company whose mission is to bridge the wealth gap through access to procurement opportunities. Higher Ground is making the enterprise ecosystem more viable, profitable, and competitive by clearing the path for minority-led, women-led, LGBT-led, and veteran-led small businesses to contribute to the global economy as suppliers to enterprise organizations. For more information on getting started, please visit us at higherground.io. That's H-I-R-E-G-R-O-U-N-D.io. Now on to the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. I'm Matt Colicello, in for Adam Moore, and I'm here with my co-host, Chloe Guidry-Reed. In today's episode, we're joined by a return guest, journalist Paul Singer, investigations editor at the GBH News Center for Investigative Reporting. Singer's Color of Public Money series investigates the systemic exclusion of minority-owned businesses from public contracts in Massachusetts. He and his team recently covered a groundbreaking story that followed a construction company working on a $100 million public contract that filed false reports on its diverse spend to the city government. Using their research, the state attorney general filed a suit against the company and reached a $1.9 million settlement, 500,000 of which has been allocated for minority business development in the city where the project is located. Singer, welcome back to the show. We're really excited to hear about all of this. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's, it's good to be back. It was a, it's, a, it's nice to have a win to report. Yes. yes. Yeah. It's nice to have a win to, re- to report on. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> and we want to hear more about that win. But first, I think, you know, for our listeners who haven't heard our previous interview with you, tell us a little bit more about the Color of Money series at GBH News. Uh, so, right. The Color of Public Money, it all began with a research project we had for a, a bunch of college students. Basically, we, we had some data science students um, who were looking for something to do. And we threw them at this database that the state collects contract information on a website that's behind a paywall, which I consider basically sacrilege. Yes. They went through this thing and they scraped this website for me. Um, and we came up with 13,000 contracts that had been awarded by state and local entities uh, for public projects over a 10-year period. Um, and, and the students were like, what do you want to do with this? And I said, I don't know. Um, there's also a database of certified minority companies in the state of Massachusetts. Let's just merge purge and compare those two databases and see how many of those 13,000 contracts went to minority owned businesses. And the students came back and they uh, went through this process and they did the whole thing and said that, well, 280. And I said, hold it. You clearly did this wrong. 
There's no way that out of 13,000 contracts over a 10 year period, 280 of them went to minority businesses. That's not possible. Go back and do it again. So we went back and did it again. And it was correct. Now, that database had all kinds of holes in it. So there's all reasons to believe those numbers were not exactly accurate, but they were definitely directionally accurate. We were able to prove a couple of things over a period of it. Took, we've been working on this now for four and a half years, I guess. Initially, we were able to prove that the value of contracts, public contracts won by minority-owned businesses in Massachusetts had declined over the past 20 years. That was the first story. The second story, we saw other places doing much better, and we sort of compared and contrasted to what Philadelphia was doing versus what Massachusetts was doing. Some interesting findings. And then we figured out that the state, when they counted a minority-owned business getting a contract, they were not actually counting contracts from minority-owned businesses. They were counting anything, anything they could find. They were counting if you know the white-owned firm that was you know repaving the highway happened to have a Caribbean caterer in their dining hall. The state was taking credit for that. If the white-owned contractor that was building the building on the state contract had their staff go and volunteer at a Black educational trade show or something like that, a, a job fair for Black students, those volunteer hours would be counted in some cases as contract dollars from the state. It was just the thing that I think was really the, the tearing point is we figured out that the state discovered in 2014-15 that it was not going to be hitting the targets, that the state agencies, you know, the state government had said, well, 8% of state contracts should go to minority contract. Maybe it was 7% at the time. Anyway, the, you know, states do this. They set a number. 7% of state government contracts should go to minority-owned businesses. At some point, the state had realized they were not going to hit those targets. And so they went back to the agencies and asked, how come you're not hitting the targets? And basically, the agency said, well, because you're not letting us count all this other crap. And so the state made a conscious, explicit decision that was included in a footnote, which we found, that said, because we are not hitting the targets, we're going to start counting all this other crap. Literally, it said, not word for word, obviously, but essentially, it said, we have been told by other agencies that we are not able to meet the contact, the eight percent goal or the seven percent goal, because we have not included these other ancillary things. So we are now going to begin counting those ancillary things, and that'll get us over the target. It was a classic example of, and, and I, <laughs> you guys know this better than anybody else. Failure is an option, right? Failure is how you learn. Failure is how you, you recognize that we're not doing the right things because we failed. And therefore, we should change what we're doing in order to succeed, right? Failure is a great guide. In Massachusetts, the state decided that failure was not an option. What that meant was that instead of admitting failure, we were going to basically cover it up. That is what, is what we were able to prove. And it got to the point where finally George Floyd was murdered and suddenly the governor of Massachusetts had to call some black people and sit down with them. Honestly, that's what this, that's what this is about. That is so interesting. I mean, it's interesting that the state of Massachusetts thought it was okay to falsify the numbers. It's also interesting that, I mean, in all honesty, that there was a settlement because, I mean, how many other states and municipalities and corporations. I'm not trying to, you know, I want to play nice in the sandbox, but we all know that some of these numbers are not 
100% accurate. So how do we make sure that there is some integrity in this in this data? I'm just so glad that you know, news outlets, editorials, and and other people like Higher Ground and other teams are challenging, you know, some of these numbers that are being put out there these days. But it takes an incredible amount of research and capacity to be able to go through this mm-hmm. because this information is not easily accessible. You know, at some point in this process, you know, the, the governor was denying everything we were finding all the way along. And at some point in this process, you know, whether he knew what was going on or not, I don't know. But but then George Floyd gets murdered and all of a sudden the governor realizes that he has to sit down with people of color and have conversations. Um, And the first conversation that that some of the black business leaders brought to him was this. And so the night before the 2000, was that 2020? Yeah. The night before the 2020 election, the governor issued a press release, not a press conference, issued a press release, essentially admitting everything that we'd reported and saying, we're creating a new agency to fix it. So, To the governor's credit, what has happened since then is that we have seen spending with minority-owned businesses increase somewhat, a little bit, not a great deal, but a little bit. And we have seen they have begun reporting the numbers in a different way to specifically disclose what are direct contracts with minority-owned businesses and what is everything else. Right. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. allows you, again, this is where those, you know, that allows you to, to begin to hold someone to account. Right. The transparency is critical. And and I'll tell you, you know, because we had some of this conversation. I don't remember when the last time uh, we had this conversation, when the last time I was on a guest on your show. It would have been in the fall last year. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. But what is clear is that this problem is not unique to Massachusetts and you will find it everywhere you go. And there's lots of ways to go find it. It is not transparent. Mm. But when you get transparency, and now that we've figured out the code, now we know how to find it. And, right. and there's all kinds of stuff, you know, I want to encourage any anybody listening to this podcast who either is a reporter or knows a reporter. We know now, we now know how to do this and to find the fraud. And the fraud is not uncommon. I believe it is actually more or less standard practice. Mm. That it hurts to hear. I know. Well, and 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 the settlement, and, and and we'll turn in a second to talk about specifically this settlement. But yeah. but the settlement is, you know, there was a time when we wrote a story and 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 we said something like, you know, there had been some sort of a, a, a false claims case brought against the company, and, and we wrote that essentially what we said is the state isn't really enforcing these things. Look, there's only been you know a half dozen false claim cases in ten years that that you know alleged improper claims of minority inclusion. And we actually got a phone call back from somebody in the state who was kind of pissed off and said, what do you mean only? A half dozen of these cases is a lot. These cases are really, really rare, and they're really, really hard to prove. So I just want everyone to understand who's listening that what we're about to talk about is a little different from where you started off with the color of public money, because this most recent story is not so much about the government not being held accountable or not properly reporting or, or or falsely reporting its diverse spend. This is actually about a private company, a pair of private companies, if I understand correctly, that got a contract with a city government in Massachusetts. And now the city government also did not have a reporting practice that would adequately hold the companies to account. And then the companies 
themselves, well, they behaved like companies that aren't held accountable. They falsely reported the contractors in their own supply chain after making a commitment to have to have a diverse supply chain. So can you just tell us basically everything about that story? Just start us off from the beginning of what the project was and then how you found out about it and did this research. And I'm glad you, you said that because, because this speaks to the problem is endemic in the system. And, and what the governor was doing mm-hmm. is simply replicating what other people are doing. And it's because that there it is not in anybody's interest anywhere in the system to squeal. Mm-hmm. So, and this is why I believe it's going on everywhere. Okay. In, in this case, Worcester, Massachusetts uh, was going to build a ballpark, $100 million ballpark for a new minor league baseball team, uh, the Red Sox affiliate, the that was in Pawtucket, uh, Rhode Island, moved to Worcester. Um, and now we have the Worcester Red Sox. Woo-hoo! And they're playing in a ballpark called Polar Park, named after Polar Springwater, which is local. They had promised the city as part of their bid, the companies that were building it, Gilbane Hunt. It was a, it was Gilbane and I don't know, I, Hunt I'm unfamiliar with, Gilbane I'm familiar with. But these two big builders had created a joint partnership to, to build this ballpark. And as part of their pitch to the city to win the bid, they said they were going to include minority-owned businesses at some you know significant rate. They included a minority-owned business as uh, one of the lead Literally, they, they put together a PowerPoint with photographs of all these people. And and one of these minority-owned businesses was like, you know, the third base coach. And it was baseball themed. And they win the bid. The city had set this kind of squishy goal for about 20% inclusion of women and minorities combined. So I would tell you there's reasons not to do that. But that's there's the definitely point. reasons not to do that. Yeah. But anyway, so Gilbane Hunt tells their subcontractors, this is our goal and whatever, and everybody agrees and blah, blah, blah. So the building is done and they're about to have a big celebratory event. And because of the work we'd been doing, we just decided to call them up and ask them whether they hit their goal. A little more to it than that, but in short, basically that. And they said, yeah, the city actually said, yeah, we did. We're very excited about that. And the city sent us this list of all the companies they had used and the amount of money each company had gotten. So we went and looked up the companies. And we found out some of the ones that are listed as MBEs were not. Some of the ones listed as WBEs were not. We called a couple of the MBEs that were listed and the amount of money that they were listed as having been paid, they were not paid. The third base coach company got basically nothing. And when you did the math, instead of what they had claimed, that was, I don't remember exactly the number, it was somewhere in their age, they had claimed four to 5% of the money had gone to um, minority owned businesses. In the end, which had been four or $5 million. In the end, the total was closer to $500,000 out of $100 million. Uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Our headline was uh, minority owned companies got peanuts. Yeah. And it would just happen. We were not entirely lucky. We sort of planned this. It, we, our story dropped two days before, I think, or maybe the day before the big city wide planning meeting where they were going to like unveil their success story. And instead, it turned into this thing where one of the county commissioners, the, the, the redevelopment authority commissioner said, basically, we look like idiots. And yeah. Gilbane said, well, our numbers were wrong, but it's not our fault. We had given you numbers based on what we had told the subs to do. And the subs had given us numbers on what they were intending to do, but nobody had ever gone back to check. Nobody had ever asked for the receipts until we did, because it's not in anybody's interest to ask for the receipts. It is in everybody's interest to declare success. It is not in anybody's interest to recognize failure. 
because they don't want to fix it. They just want to declare victory. That's what happens all the way up and down the chain. Are you a diverse small business owner looking to expand your client base and grow your revenue? Join Breaking Barriers hosts Chloe Guidry-Reed and Adam Moore on Wednesday, April 19th from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern for a special live virtual event featuring a panel of corporate leaders from across industries who will pull back the curtain on what companies like theirs look for in diverse suppliers. You'll learn best practices for communicating with procurement teams, building long-term relationships with buyers, and most importantly, securing lucrative contracts. For more information on this live virtual event and to register, go to hireground.io forward slash panel. That's hireground.io forward slash panel. See you there. I just think about this even just on the private side. There's certain tools that are used to do tier one and tier two reporting. Most of it's automated. And you send it out to tier one suppliers and it's an input. There's no one checking it. You know, there's no one inside these organizations who are charged with validating this information and the accuracy of it. A lot of times they don't have the capacity to do that. So, you know, listening to this story, I'm just wondering how do, how, what would be your suggestion around how these corporations validate the accuracy of the information that's being reported to their subcontract? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, you know, I work hard, but I'm not superhuman, right? I mean, it didn't take me and my team all that much work to pick up a phone. There was only, I don't know, 25 companies on the list, maybe, you know, and we called them all. How long did that take? You know, I would say we spent more time dealing with pushback from press officers and, you know, our legal department than we did actually contacting people. And you get them on the phone like, hey, this thing says you got paid a million dollars to put in flooring. Did you get paid a million dollars to put in flooring? And you know what they told us? No. (laughs) So now, and I'll say in theory, and you guys know this better than I do, because I don't really understand this business very well, but my understanding is there's supposed to be compliance officers on site at each one of these large builds anyway, right? Isn't someone supposed to be checking? But they're usually hired by the um, the general contract manager. Sometimes. Sometimes there's someone checking. It really depends on if the companies decide that they want to make that investment in making sure that they have someone on site for the duration of those projects. But those are for con, you know, construction projects. I mean, who knows about everything else? I mean, when you you've practices around it and you've got to make the investment in someone's salary to actually then go and check all of this information. Right. Well, then in, in, in this particular case, what ends up happening is because we had laid a pretty clear string of breadcrumbs and because they were able, you know, they basically had to admit it in a government hearing the next day. Now the attorney general, like I said, they're hard to pursue these cases. Now the attorney general can go to, straight to them and say, all, you know, all the AG, and again, I'm not faulting the AG's office, they were able to take the material we had, which we made public, and they were able to go pursue the rest of it and with subpoenas and get the rest of the information and basically say, okay, you lied. And they reached a settlement and the settlement is, uh, you know, the companies agreed, here's the interesting part, the companies agreed to $1.9 million settlement 
which on $100 million is really just kind of a rounding error anyway. They agreed to specifically put $500,000 of that penalty into minority business inclusion and incubation in Worcester. So there's that. Um, And they agreed for the next, I think it is three years, maybe it's five years, to hire an outside compliance monitor for all their public projects, not their private projects, their public projects in Massachusetts. Now, I will tell you that, you know, you get what you count. If your CEO cared about this, it would not be a five-year limited window only on public projects, only in Massachusetts, blah, 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 right? I mean, like, if you want to do this right, you can do it right. Right. And that's because it has to be an investment in change and it has to be an investment in impact. And when you're just saying, yeah, we're going to work with some minority-owned companies in order to get a contract, you're not investing in change or impact, neither internally nor externally, right? That's really where this problem is. But from my perspective, yeah, okay, the AG's office took this up. There was a settlement. They got, you know, a slap on the wrist. But this is not systemic change, what we're talking about. Although I think, you, I think your research is laying the ground because it's empowering people with evidence, uh, the groundwork to create change. But ultimately, it feels like there's still something missing in, in this picture where if the government isn't going to hold companies accountable and there's no one holding the government accountable other than journalists, it's just going to keep happening. I mean, that's I hate to be cynical, but that's that's what I'm taking away from this. It's just so frustrating to hear. It, it is true. Now, I will tell you, as far as a systemic change goes, um, for what it's worth, um, in the past couple of months, some people have leaked me some emails that Gilbane has been circulating one to minority business incubator type of organizations saying, hi, we're looking to hire minority businesses for our next uh, government contract. Do you know any you want to send to us? So is that. And then the second is that they've apparently listed a couple of job openings for um, new minority business outreach coordinators at Kilbane. So, okay, you know, they're right. Right. Exactly. I, I make the same point, right which is like, eh, okay, we got their attention. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but you are correct that I do not know how much difference it makes when we being reporters go and find and prove that this is not being done correctly, the company is is penalized. We make a we make an example of them effectively. Does that influence the behavior of you know Matt and Chloe Construction? You know, I don't know, right? I I don't know whether other big uh, construction industry looks at that and says, you know, you know, we should we should do more. We should really, you know, we should be thinking more about our minority inclusion. I just don't know. Now, I will tell you that that now that we sort of figured out the template, like I said, if you know any other reporters anywhere in America who want an easy story, pick a large public project, ask them whether they had minority inclusion data, ask them whether they had goals involved, ask them whether they got a report, ask them if you can have the report, and then fact check the report. You will find they probably didn't have very good goals. They probably didn't meet them. And the stuff that they provided to show that they probably didn't meet them probably wasn't correct. Mm. Just go do it a couple of times. I definitely will take a look at that for some stuff that that's happened in Georgia. Cause I'm just curious, not necessarily that I want to police it, but 
it's good to just understand. I mean, and, and maybe if it's so disturbing, then we may try to take a stab at policing it. But I'm just, I'm just the first pass is just curiosity. Pick a project, pick, pick any recently built large project in a place where, you know, and, and George is a little weird because um, I don't, remember, my recollection is there's not a single agency that governs minority business uh, certification in the state. I tried finding the equivalent agency in Georgia and I couldn't find them. But I know that like the city of Atlanta has done some disparity studies and stuff. So I know that there are people who've looked at this topic, but yeah, just pick a building. Mm. Okay. We definitely will and see what we can come up with. Cause yeah, that's interesting. Have you been a part of the unfolding of the funds, the 1.9 and being allocated and what some of those small businesses reaction to all of this and how they're, you know, what they're doing with, with these funds. Yeah. So this is a funny part of the story and, and forgive me for being a little cagey here. I'm trying to remember, obviously there are people who I have spoken to across the state who have given me useful information, but have not been on the record. And so I'm not going to um, divulge any of those privileged conversations. What I, what I will tell you is that one of the complaints in general about these type of settlements, because there was another one that we did a story on about 18 months ago, same kind of deal. And the objection we got from some of the black contractors particularly was, okay, great. The AG has settled this case required a payment that goes into a state fund somewhere. And those companies that were, you know, promised work on these jobs, these are not people asking for handouts. These are people who were promised work on these jobs, got nothing. They still got nothing. And in this case, in this settlement, again, you know, $500,000 went back to Worcester to do minority inclusion and development work, but it didn't go to any of the companies that got essentially shafted on the ballpark construction project. I have not, and I hope you will forgive me for my lax reporting, I have not gone back to Worcester to find out where that money has gone. This was, the settlement was back in January, uh, December, January. So uh, Merry Christmas to me. We have not yet tracked where that $500,000 has gone. I do know that the state um, has taken a bunch of COVID relief money and thrown it into a big project to do minority business incubator work, to do trainings, to do some education things statewide. They're, they're hoping to train hundreds of companies into a bunch of stuff that, again, that would be familiar to you, like you know, how to write better contracts, uh, how to how to look for bids, mm-hmm. how to prospect for mm-hmm. bids, you know, stuff like that. How to also get your capital and financing straight. Because a lot of the issue here is, and this is one that I don't understand a lot of, but I, but I, Again, I'm just not that smart in this topic, but I am told that one of the big problems for the smaller minority-owned businesses and in getting involved in these things is they don't have the insurance coverage for larger projects, and they don't have the cash flow up front to wait for a 90-day reimbursement. Are there things you could do to bridge those kind of barriers? And so there is a lot of that conversation going on, and I feel like that wheel is turning mm-hmm. yeah. for what it's worth. I mean, yeah, those are definitely issues that we we hear about from smaller, diverse suppliers and that, you know, there are a number of resources out there for smaller, diverse suppliers to get help on that. And there's also the, the better run enterprises are running 
programs themselves for suppliers that they want right. in their pipeline to right. help them to help build their capacity so that they can be in their in their supply chain. You know, what you're saying kind of brings that up for me that there needs to be not just more supplier education because the onus, you know, in the situation that you're reporting on, it's not on the diverse suppliers. It's really on it's really on the Gilbanes of the world not to have already had a supplier diversity, supply chain inclusion practice in place like 25 years ago, let alone in 2022 or 21 when they got this contract. And this gets to sort of my broader issue. And one of the reasons why we are still, you know, however much longer, four years we've been into this thing, still writing these stories is that is that we keep having these conversations like, well, those companies haven't established yet. Or we were for a long time, we we're doing some workforce stories about how come there's no uh, minority workforce on a lot of these projects. Um, like, well, you know, the workforce isn't there yet. And, you know, it's been like, I can go back to 1980 and open up the same news story where people are saying like, well, you know, the workforce isn't there yet, but we started a training program. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Every decade you start a training program for black people in the construction trades and there's still no black people in construction trades. You tell me what's going on. I think that if we could, you know, I don't think it's just as simple as this, but I think there's a lot of siloed efforts we could collectively come together a little bit more on a state level, on a city level, on a national level, then we probably could move the needle. But there are so many hurdles at every turn that it's hard for just any one entity to try to tackle it on their own. And and honestly, you know, I really do believe, I really do believe, I really do believe that if the CEO cares the behavior of the enterprise can change. And that, and I mean that by the CEO of the company, the mayor of the city, the governor of the state, if the, the leadership says to staff, what I want is for you to increase our spending on contracts with minority-owned business, and I want you to report back every year on where we have succeeded and where we have failed. And by the way, your job, your bonuses, your incentives are going to be tied to not only increasing our minority spend, but also to identifying the flaws that will help us increase next year. You will get credit and bonus for both of those objects. Mm-hmm. It will motivate people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just making it, it's just making it one of the KPIs. I mean, it's really yeah. as simple as that. You know, you you can't have this be a supposed it's it's only a supposed goal if it's not really a goal. <laughs> you know, like it's as simple as that. And by the way, forgive me, but um I hate KPIs. And the reason I hate KPIs is not because I think they're a bad idea. It's because people set KPIs not to be ambitious. People set KPIs to be something we can meet. It's invariable. It's like, well, we're going to set our key performance indicator at nine. You know why? Because last year we hit nine. <laughs> so uh, well, look, we hit our key performance indicator. All right, well, if you really want it to be the key performance indicator, set it at 12. Exactly. <laughs> let's, let's stretch it. Let's, let's really make it ambitious. Yeah. But again, but I, but I do believe that you know, I'm proud of the work we have done here. I really am. But I'm also convinced that it is only that we are so stupid that it took us four years to get where we got. And now that we 
understand what the codes look like out there in the world. The stuff is out there. It's everywhere and it's gettable. It's gettable. It's, you know, reporters or, or, or podcasters or people in the business. It is not. And, and I'm, and, you know, send me an email, Paul underscore singer at WGBH.org. And I will show you where to go looking. And I am almost certain you're going to find some of the stuff we found. Yeah. Well, as you say that, it just makes me think about how we very, very often talk about how supplier diversity, how, how really creating an equitable economy is not simply about buyers and suppliers. It's about a whole ecosystem, multiple companies working together on the enterprise side. It's about having advocacy organizations in there as well. They're not buyers or suppliers. They're just building connections. And, and journalists are part of that ecosystem. Um, in terms of bringing forth research, in, in terms of helping others hold companies accountable. It's, it's part of the essential structure of that ecosystem. And I'm just thinking we should somehow collaborate through breaking barriers. I mean, it would be amazing to offer a workshop for journalists. Yeah. Nationally, it could be virtual, uh, who want to do reporting on this. And I've done it uh, for the uh, investigative reporters editors uh, group. It's called IRE. And I did a training based on how to do this. Um, and several reporters came out of there very excited and they did some, some decent stories about it. But again, you have to get the same deal, right? You got to get your editor signed on to the idea that they can, you know, right. invest your time in this thing. I will say that one of the things that you said there that, that really touched a, a chord with me is this ecosystem business. I mean, the, we wrote a story a couple of weeks ago about Eastern Bank, which is one of our um, local banks uh, in Boston, that tends to do a lot of community-focused work. They are offering a new loan program for businesses. It, it essentially, in some cases, does away with credit score requirements entirely. Hmm. Because, yeah, because because they began to figure out that black and brown uh, entrepreneurs generally are going to have a worse credit score. And they're also not going to have a lot of uh, familial wealth to back them. But but the deal was, if you don't walk in Eastern Bank and they say, never mind your credit score, here's a loan, right? What they do is they have a partnership with a bunch of these ecosystem organizations with the, the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts or Interise, which are these organizations that do business training and business counseling and, and business coaching. And if you have a relationship with them, then Eastern can give you this loan essentially without a credit score because they know that someone is helping you over the hurdles that will help you grow, which is a really interesting approach. We'll see if it works, right? But it is it gets to, to Matt what you're saying about the ecosystem uh, idea that that it's really about there is a community involvement here that helps businesses rise and in theory rises all boats. That's the whole idea. Exactly. And 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 in theory, for Eastern Bank, like it makes it's a good investment for them. They believe that this is, uh, you know, where they're going to grow new customer base, because these businesses have previously not, you know, particularly you know Latino and Black businesses, they're just they're essentially unbanked uh-huh. from or haven't yeah just don't they get taken through a whole other set of criteria that's almost impossible for them to meet depending on where they are in the evolution of their business. Right. But, you know, again, I, I spoke to one of these uh, called ecosystem organizations and he said that, great, the bank is doing the right thing, exactly the right thing. But, you know, before you get to the bank, you have to do you have your LLC? You know, do you have a separate 
accounting system and receipts and so that you're not just being paid through your Venmo, right? So that the bank can see that you've produced income through this. You know, have you done those things to structure yourself like a business so that they can fund you like a business, you know? And some of that is just, it's, it's, you know, that's coaching. Yes. Well, I will be interested to see how this all plays out. And if, you know, after all of this, you know, the minority businesses in Massachusetts end up actually winning more business as a result of these collective efforts. Well, as I said, the the beauty of the way the state has agreed to change its reporting, we are, it should be more or less now, it's March, right? This is about the time every year they put out their annual report and we will see if there's been progress. Also, for what it's worth, there's been a change of CEO here in Massachusetts um, and we have a new governor. She now owns this problem and let's see if she's you know, going to double down and, and have an impact. She was, by the way, previously the attorney general and it was her office that brought this case against the ballpark. So it's not like she's unfamiliar with the topic area. Right. right? And again, this is what I get to, right? Maybe if the CEO really cares about this, maybe you see progress. Well, but but the way they're reporting it now, in theory, we'll be able to actually hold them to it. That's great. That's great. Love it. Excited to see what's to come. But thank you so much for coming on the show, Paul. This has been great. Be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcast and check out our previous shows. Stay tuned for next time. Thank you for listening to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. We are grateful for the time you spend with us in participating in these conversations. Please review and rate and share our show as we are focused on growing awareness in the supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity space. If you'd like more information, please visit us at higherground.io. That's H-I-R-E ground dot I-O. Thank you for being here and we look forward to seeing you next week.